Well, if you thought that by Twelfth Night you'd be free from the Christmas season of 2018, you'll have to forgive me that this evening our message is entitled, The Reason for the Season. The Reason for the Season, which is not a particularly original title for a sermon which takes place at this time of year. By season, of course, I mean Christmas, and what I want us to look at again this evening is a subject I know you've looked at before, and we'll look at many times again, but why did Christ come? Why do we have a Christmas? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ ever come? And I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read them once more to you. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Christ, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And the first thing I want to do is for you to note that that text is a Christmas text. It speaks there of Jesus sharing in their humanity. It's speaking of him coming, effectively, to Bethlehem. What the writer to the Hebrews says here is what John says in his prologue. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He shared in their humanity. What we read here is what Paul says elsewhere when he says, you know that he who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Here is a verse about the incarnation. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. As the carols say, veiled in flesh, it's the Godhead that we see. We hail the incarnate deity. But why did he take flesh? Why did he come to share in their humanity? And I'm sure if we threw it open this evening, we'd have many hands go up and say, well, we know why. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Or the reason the Son of God appeared was that he would take away sin. From 1 John 3, 5. But I want you to notice that different reasons are given in these two verses here. That doesn't mean the answers I've just given aren't true. They clearly are. But here we're told that he shared in their humanity two reasons. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and then the second reason, verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And that's going to be our subject matter here this evening. And I want to put my hands up and be honest to make a confession. This is something I've struggled with for years, even decades. In what way did Christ truly on the cross destroy the devil? How did he do that? In what way does the cross destroy the devil? I think for many years I, I kind of wonder whether there's a kind of hand-to-hand fight and in the end Jesus sort of reigns by putting his foot on the throat of the devil and winning. How does he destroy the devil through his death? And as I began to look at this subject, I realised that I'd never heard a sermon preached on it in 30 years. It had never been mentioned at Bible college. And historically, I understand that in our constituency, very little attention is given to this topic. 
And if you think about it, you'll notice that when you think about the books that you've read on spiritual warfare. The great classics are William Gurnall's Christian Incomplete Armour or Bunyan's Holy War or Thomas Brooks's Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And all of those books deal with the application of Jesus having destroyed the devil. How we are to live in the spiritual battle. But none of them deal with how he actually destroyed the devil. And I trace that back to the Reformation when, of course, the Reformers were fighting other battles and so dealt very little indeed with this subject. It is, of course, touched on elsewhere in the Scriptures. I just mentioned 1 John 3, 5. In 1 John 3, 8, John says there, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, a verse I confess I've struggled to understand for years, we read, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This subject is known by the theologians and scholars as Christus Victus, Christ the victor. It's Christ's conquest over Satan. And it's a very important one for us to understand and also pastorally to apply to our lives. And so this evening we're going to try and look together at the reason for the season why Christ came to see that Christmas led to Christ conquering and Satan being crushed. And I want to do, try and do simply two things. And the first one is to begin on ground that we're all familiar with. Now I'm quite aware there will be people here tonight who know Christus Victus like the back of their hand. There's many others like me who won't really have given it much thought. So let's start on familiar ground, which is just that we know that as Christians we're involved in a spiritual battle. We know that from the reading of God's word. There is an unseen realm of spiritual reality in which a battle rages. And the scriptures make that very plain, don't they? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always helped when a preacher preaches on spiritual warfare. Because the first thing I think is, yeah, I've forgotten <laughs> And that explains last week. So I'm always helped when they they preach on the spiritual battle. And we know that it's a warfare because of the very language that the Bible uses. Even one of the names of God is that he is the Lord of hosts. I think in the French Bible it's he is the eternal God of battles. It could be translated that he is the God of armies. So we are reminded, even in the name of God, that we're involved in a spiritual warfare. And of course, the classic place to go to is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, where we're told to put on the whole armour of God. We're involved in a spiritual battle. And we also know that because of the unfurling story of the Bible from Genesis 3, where that first question is raised, did God really say... And there we read of enmity between Satan's seed and a woman, Eve's seed. And of course we follow through then the unfurling story of the battle right towards the end of the book of Revelation. So you know as well as I know that there's a background here of spiritual warfare. And we also know that involved in that spiritual warfare is the person of Satan or the devil, the arch enemy of God and of mankind. And we know of his past, 
People say, who, who, who made the devil? Well, the answer is God made the devil, but he created him as a beautiful angel. But on account of pride, he fell and swept with him a third of the angelic host, what we now call the demons. He has a past. He has a present. He has a personality and a power. He's not an inanimate object or force. When the Bible speaks of Satan, it refers to him as the prince of this world. That tells us a little bit already of his power. It refers to him as a murderer from the beginning, a liar, the god of this age. It refers to him as the accuser of the brethren. He's a prowling, roaring lion going around seeking those whom he can devour. He's a real, living personality. And if you doubt his power, then recall that he can take life. In the book of Job, we see that Job's children, his seven sons and three daughters, their deaths are attributed to the work of Satan, not to mention the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and the servants. The devil can ruin health. Job's body and the woman bent double for 18 years in Luke chapter 13. It's attributed to the devil. He can torment with demons. He can provoke evil deeds, as he did with Judas. It seems that he can even cause natural disasters, as with Job. For there we read, strangely, that the fire of God fell, but it's clearly attributed to the work of Satan. And a mighty wind sweeps in from the desert, causing the house to collapse. We're not to overestimate the devil, but neither are we to underestimate him. He blinds the minds of all unbelievers. How many unbelievers are there in Loughborough here this evening? Don't underestimate the devil. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. We should be serious and sober and earnest without being paranoid and without, as we're going to see this evening, being fearful. I mean, he had the audacity to tempt Christ in the wilderness. I'm just starting this evening on familiar ground to show the background of the spiritual warfare that we know we're involved in. But at the centre of that battle is the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil. And what I next want to encourage you to do this evening is to see the whole of Christ's life and ministry seen as a conflict with Satan. I don't know that's always a dimension that we consider first, but it's a dimension that we need to consider. The whole of his life and ministry as a conflict with Satan. Now, we'd see that, even, wouldn't we, even at his birth, where Herod seeks to put to death all the boys, aged under two, in the vicinity of Bethlehem, seeking to destroy the Messiah. It's a spiritual warfare. But then we see it at the beginning of Christ's ministry, don't we, at the age of 30, when he's baptised. What follows next? What's the first thing of his ministry? Well, he's tempted, isn't he? But very significantly, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is really a a deliberate declaration of war by Christ. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a rerun of the Garden of Eden. 
but now not in the glorious greenery of a garden, but in the sand of a desert and a wilderness. And there in the wilderness, Christ is victorious. And the last Adam, Satan is the one, uh, the last Adam, Jesus, is the one who wins. And Satan is overcome and he's dismissed. Right at the beginning, significantly right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which is a conflict with Satan. It's the first step in him binding the strong man armed and spoiling his goods, preventing him from being successful and ruining him, seizing something of his power and his goods. But the battle isn't just there at the birth, is it? It's not just there at the beginning of his public ministry. Almost immediately afterwards we read of a widespread manifestation of demonic possession. And Jesus goes into battle. He demonstrates his power over demons and darkness and the devil and even death. And he drives out demons. And the scripture says that when he does that, that's evidence that the kingdom of God is coming, that the battle has begun and is already being won. And the demons know who he was. They say, have you come to destroy us before our time? They know who he is. They know what he's come to do. But they say, oh, this seems a bit premature to us. He's driving out the demons. But the climax of the battle is fought where? Well, it's fought at the cross. And the cross is something which Satan both seems to seek to stop Jesus facing, as in the temptations. You can have all the worship and adoration this way by not going through the cross. While at the same time, the cross seems to be something that the devil seeks to bring to pass, but in his own way, in his own time, and in his own will, stirring up the Jews, entering Judas's heart. You see, the last thing Satan wants is for the ransom to be paid on Calvary's cross in Jesus' terms. But his whole life and ministry is a conflict with Satan. And that clearly reaches a crescendo as we approach the cross. It's clear most of all in the Gospel of John. You'll know that halfway through John is chapter 13. Well, here at chapter 12, just as we're about to enter the last week of Jesus' earthly life, we read, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He's speaking of the cross. The prince of this world is going to be driven out. A few verses later we read the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. 23 verses later Satan enters into him. And Jesus says, what you're about to do, Judas, do quickly. The battle is increasing. So it's so that as they're about to leave the upper room in John chapter 14, Jesus says, and it's translated in English, come let us leave. As though, well, we're just leaving one location and we're going somewhere else. But that's not what it means at all. It's a military response. It's come let us advance against the enemy. That's what he means when he says come let us leave. And it follows the previous verse which says the prince of this world is coming. And Jesus' response to the prince of this world coming is, let us advance now against the enemy. His whole ministry is a conflict with Satan. 
Of course, there in the garden, Judas with a detachment of troops arrives and Jesus simply says, I am he. And what happens to them? Well, they draw back and fall. Christ's human enemies are brushed aside with ease. But then he goes to the cross. And he signals the great victory is complete when he bows his head and says, it is finished. The fulfilment of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 The serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. On the cross, Christ crushes the head of the serpent. But his victory is won by him being injured himself. The heel of the seed of the woman will be struck. So the Lord Jesus Christ wins his victory in a most unusual way by death. And in a sense, it's by being crushed that Christ crushes. And in that way, the prince of death is defeated by death. And the one who suffers death conquers. And the one who wields death succumbs. Yes, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to take away sin. He came into the world to bring forgiveness, but also at the same time, he came to battle with and to destroy Satan and his works. He came to dethrone the ruler of this world, which is what he does at the cross. And that's where I want us to go next this evening. It's always difficult, you know, when you're a visiting preacher. There's two things about visiting preachers. I once knew a pastor who said that whenever he invited a visiting preacher, he always invited somebody who would preach poorly, so the congregation would always welcome him back into the pulpit the next week. I'm not sure what the motive was for inviting me this evening. And the second thing is, as a visiting preacher, you often want to bring your best sermon or your most accessible sermon, and I've not done that at all this evening. This is a demanding sermon to listen to. Because it raises questions that we might not have asked and it answers questions that we might not have thought about. And that's why I'd encourage you to hold in there, you know, the background of spiritual warfare, that the centre is Christ and Satan from his birth, through his public ministry, from the beginning to the cross. But how is it that the cross destroys the devil? Well, in 1 John 3.8 we read, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In Colossians 2 and 15 we read, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And in our text this evening we read that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And the questions which have gone round in my mind for a, a while and I haven't really sought to answer for too long, are these? And I wonder if you've ever had these questions. In what way did the devil have power over death? Because it says that he does, so he must have done. In what way does the devil have power over death? And that's important for us to know, isn't it, so that we can see how that power was destroyed, even in our own lives. And the second question which I had was, how was that power actually destroyed by the cross? How did the cross render that power powerless? 
And then thirdly, what's the outcome of all of that for the believer? Those are the three questions which I had, and I'm going to try and answer them in some measure this evening. In what way did the devil, or does the devil, have power over death? Very important we see that as believers, you know, so that we understand his tyranny, the tyranny that we were once under, and the tyranny from which we have now been freed. Notice that our text this evening says that he does, that by Christ's death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Well, it can't mean that he has absolute power over death. That would make him God. And we've already sung, haven't we, words which we read in Revelation 1.18, that it's Jesus who holds the key of death and Hades. It's not Satan. So in what way does Satan have power over death? Well, he doesn't have the power in his own right to act lawfully in the matter of death. You see, Satan's authority is a usurped authority, isn't it? It's an authority which is grabbed by deceit and by force and illegally. He doesn't have the right to judge men's guilt, but nevertheless, he has the power over death. In what way? Well, he is the enemy, isn't he, who reigns over the prevailing realm of darkness and death. You know there are two kingdoms, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of darkness. You know that everybody is born into the kingdom of darkness. Darkness and death and Satan reign in that kingdom. In fact, the Bible tells us that the whole world, destined for death and destruction, is under his sway. He's the God of this age. He's the prince of this world. His dominion of darkness is the dominion where sin and death Rain. And that's where we're not to underestimate him because he holds men, women and young people in the chains of sin and death as slaves. He reigns over the kingdom that leads to death. How come he does that? How does he get away with doing that? Well, partly it's because the grounds of his authority is found in the the word of God, which, of course, has been violated, the commandments of God that have been disobeyed, and the guilt that has been incurred because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, God himself has declared that the soul that sins shall surely die. God has said that the wages of sin is death. And of course it was Satan who has power over death on account of the sin that he introduced. It's his question, isn't it, in the garden as the serpent, did God really say? And the power of sin and death is the sphere where he works. It's the secret of his strength. That men and women and young people have all sinned. Sin is the ground of Satan's dominion and power over death. Sin entered the world and with it death came to all people because all sinned. And he's the one who introduced the sin and he's the one who reigns in the realm of sin. 
And so by his work, all human beings are subject to death. Unless there's a great and merciful intervention from God, we are obliged to face the judgment and the condemnation which rightly would come upon us for our sins. It's Satan who reigns. He's a murderer from the beginning. It's arising out of his work that all of mankind is obliged to die because of their sin. Now, we are responsible for our own sin. But we recognise that it also came through his work. He's even seen to be the executor of death in certain Bible passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, we read there of those in the wilderness who were killed by the destroying angel, sometimes referred to as the destroyer or the devil. He has a significant power having introduced sin, and because of man's universal sin, there being a reign of sin, death and darkness, which is Satan's realm. And because of that, he has the power of the fear of death. The human race is fearful of and troubled in their minds by dying and judgment. They try all manner of ways to suppress that, but the fear of death is inseparable from death itself. Satan is able to terrify maliciously, vengefully, because of death. And as we read here, he holds people for a lifetime in bondage to the fear of death. I mean, people long, don't they, for a way of freedom. All captives do. All captives hate the condition in which they're found. But the way in which much of mankind seems to suppress this fear is by maximising their pleasure, by singing away to their heart's content, by enjoying life for today and, and blotting out the truth that death is coming and the judgment. But underneath is the fear of death, a lifetime of bondage. Some try and be good, some try and be religious, but it's all in vain. It's a lifetime pursuit, but there's no escape. Because Satan does have power over death. And so the second question then is, well, how was that power destroyed? How was that malicious and vengeful power destroyed? Well, we're told here in verse 14, it's by Christ's death. It's destroyed by the cross. The one who has the power of death is ironically destroyed by a death. By a unique death. By the death of deaths. By the death of our Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. A death which is voluntary because he came willingly to die for us. A death which is an expression of his love for us. The death which is a divine love. Truly, we can say in measure, God died. And it's a death in which a sinless sacrifice was given who bears the sins of others as their substitute facing the wrath of God against their sin. He pays a ransom price to set the captives free, removing their sin and their guilt and their shame. How is the power of the devil over death destroyed? Well, it's in the cross. 
But how is it destroyed in the cross? Because in the Lord Jesus Christ dying there for his people in their place, he reverses for them the effects of the curse. He frees them from the obligation to face condemnation. He frees them from the power of Satan. Satan's power over them is lost when Christ dies for his people. He sets his people free from the reign of Satan. If you're a Christian here this evening, then you're instructed as I'm instructed in Romans 6 to count yourself now dead to sin and alive to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we were dead in sin. Now, hallelujah, we're dead to sin. And we're alive to the living God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because by dying for us on the cross, he set us free from the reign of Satan. He's transferred us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. And that's the work that Christ has done for us on Calvary's cross. He nullifies our obligation to face the death and condemnation that the unbeliever will face. And he nullifies all of that by being made sin on the cross for us and shedding his precious blood for us. Such that if we're in Christ here this evening, then we can boldly sing, no condemnation, now I dread. Not a little condemnation, not occasional condemnation. No, no, no condemnation. Now I dread. Because I have been declared righteous, I have been justified through my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there in the words of the hymn, let accusations cease. You can accuse what you like. And it's probably true. But it holds no water in heaven because my Saviour died for me to pay the price. And he frees me from the accusations, not only the rain, but the accusations of Satan. And that's why in a few moments we'll be singing that glorious hymn when, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, I have a remedy. Upward I look and see him there who, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. And God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Satan can witter all he likes. But his accusations hold no water. It was Martin Luther, wasn't it, who said about Satan, he may have been a roaring lion, but now he's lost all of his teeth since the cross. And Luther gave us the uh, instruction, didn't he? He said, just be careful you don't put your head in the lion's mouth, but even then he can only give you a good gumming. That's how Luther understood the devil. Just a good gumming. You see, this is how the power of death has been destroyed. And with it, the fear of death. I guess there are many of us here tonight who fear dying. We're not very happy about the process. But we don't fear death. Because we know where we're going. And we know why we're going where we're going. Because of the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to us in dying upon the cross to destroy the works of the devil. And so we have been freed from a lifetime of bondage to the fear of death. We have no reason to be terrified 
because we know that death holds none of these things for us. We have been set free from this tyranny and we have been set free to an abundant life of freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for freedom that Christ Jesus has set us free. And so all those powers that the devil once held over us are rendered void and utterly useless at the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, how? By the cross. That's where in the life of a believer he lost his power. Satan lost his power. It's blunted, it's abolished, it's rendered useless. It's by the cross that Satan loses his power. Which then leads us thirdly and finally to, well, what's the outcome of this for a believer? Well, through faith we are united, are we not, to the Lord Jesus Christ? We are united to the conqueror of Calvary. All of our sins, past, present and future, are remembered no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed them from us. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Those sins will never ever be counted against us because they were wholly counted against him. And so through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ we receive everlasting life an eternal hope, and he is our perfect righteousness in which we stand this evening wholly acceptable to God. He is not only my Lord, my life, my all, he is my perfect righteousness in whom I stand. And so believers have been set free from their slavery to sin and their slavery to Satan who no longer reigns over them. His mastery has gone. And so frankly, to fear him, you'd either have to believe a lie or you'd have to stop believing the truth. There are no grounds for you to fear him. If you're a believer, we'd be made alive in Christ. Our obligation to die and face judgment and condemnation is ended. Where are we seated this evening? Well, we're seated here in Hollywell Church, but as believers we're also seated together with him, are we not? In the heavenly realms, we reign with him. And Satan's accusations now hold no water whatsoever in the court of heaven. The fear of death he held over us is removed, and the bondage is over, and freedom reigns. And all because our Lord Jesus Christ defeated Satan upon the cross by the nature of his death. And so united to him through faith, we too are more than conquerors. We've been set free. And that leads us lastly to conclude four things. Where does this leave us? Well, firstly, this is important personally. First of all, it's important that we respond to the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we believe. That we are united to Christ through our own personal faith. 
and enter into his salvation and into his victory. Everything that I've said here this evening about his victory, if you're not united to him in a personal faith, then it doesn't hold water for you this evening. It's not true of you. What is true of you is that your mind is still blinded by Satan. That you're in a kingdom of darkness. But there is one, the light of the world, who's able to rescue you from that dominion of sin and of unbelief and bring you into the kingdom where he reigns. So our first response this evening must be personal. Do you have that faith? Have you turned from your sin, your rebellion against God, your unbelief, and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you united to Christ this evening through the one thing which unites any man, woman, or young person, their own personal faith? Are you united to Christ? The second conclusion is a theological one, that we must understand the the dimension and therefore understand our freedom. We were once held by Satan in the tyranny of darkness and death and sin. And he reigned. We're told that, aren't we, in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. When you followed the ruler of this age and were disobedient. But we've been set free from all of that. We've been set free from the power and the penalty of sin. We've been set free from condemnation. We've been set free from the reign of Satan. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who now reigns in our hearts. Thirdly, is the pastoral implication, because we see again how ignorance of Christ and his grace can feed fear in our own lives. And that's why I'm going to commend to you the words of our closing hymn tonight. If you don't already know them and recite them, well, try and learn them. They're very, very helpful. Because if you're a believer, then Satan will tempt you to despair when he tells you of the guilt within. But you've a remedy. Up would I look and see him there who made an end of all my sins. The sinless Saviour died. My sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. He rejoices over us with singing. This is the God of truth and grace and we to know these things and apply them in our lives. And lastly, it's important in the outreach of the church. What are we to give ourselves to Well, to praying and to preaching the word. Because such are the weapons of our warfare, which are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. How is the devil's reign brought to an end in people's lives? Through the preaching of the gospel. As men and women come to be convicted of their sin, of of judgment, of righteousness, and are granted repentance and faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are translated from one kingdom into another, the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for pulling down these strongholds. We must be committed to these weapons of our warfare, to praying and to preaching.
And so what do we then say in response to the fact that when Christ died, he destroyed him who holds the power over death? That is Satan. Well, in closing, let me read you these words. They begin with a question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who even at the right hand of God makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a privileged people we are to have been set free from death, from sin, and from Satan. We're going to sing.